I'm Karen Elliott. Welcome to the District of Squamish's very first podcast, District B-Sides, where you'll hear in-depth conversations with council, staff, and community members to take you behind the decisions that are being made on topics that matter to Squamish. District B-Sides will be led by hosts Natasha Golbeck, Tori Hansen, and Matt Gunn. Let's tune in and join their conversation. Hello, I'm Matt Gunn, and I'm pleased to host the very first Squamish B-Sides. We're excited to bring this podcast to the community and hope it'll be an opportunity to dive deeper on topics that are of interest to you. Remember, this is our first episode, so if there's things that we can do to make it better, please reach out and let us know. Housing affordability is a multifaceted, complex issue that we as a district have been working hard to tackle in recent years. What is our role? How can we balance community growth and pressure from the lower mainland with affordability challenges for longtime residents and frontline service staff? These are tough questions about a topic that our council takes very seriously, and we're going to talk about some of those tough questions today. First, we're going to hear from a leader in community social housing, Maureen McKell of Helping Hands. We'll also hear from two district councillors, Armin Herford and Jenna Stoner, as well as what will become a regular podcast feature, our Heritage Moment. Let's get to the conversation. Our first guest here to talk about affordable housing at Squamish is Maureen McKell, the Executive Director of Squamish Helping Hands. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, Tell me a bit about your role with Helping Hands as it relates to affordable housing here in town. So as you said, I am the executive director for Squamish Helping Hands. And basically, our main tenant or our main mission is to provide housing for our most vulnerable folks in town. I have to make sure and keep my eye on the ball, making sure that people are housed and that housing is a human right. and, And we see it that way. It's a big role. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, at a high level, what is the story of affordable housing in Squamish? Um, what do you see having happened over the last decade or so? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Um, when you look back, there's a lot of things that we might have been able to see, um, but it is about being able to predict the future a little bit, and so we maybe didn't do that well enough. I think the 2010 um, Olympic Games was a was a real change for us, more people, more eyes on our town. And then, of course, when the gondola came in, it, it just went so quickly. We weren't ahead of that game to realize we're going to be in trouble with housing. And so it, it hit us. Who do you think has been most impacted by some of the changes? I always say that it, it impacts everybody. Of course, our most vulnerable folks, it has impacted in you know massive ways. There is no housing for our folks. So I run a shelter, and uh, with that shelter, generally those are supposed to be 30-day stays. That's an emergency response to someone not having housing. Whereas in our community, lots of our folks live there 365 days a year, and that's mats on the ground in a very small uh, space, the old fire hall on, uh, on 3rd Avenue. Beyond the shelter, do you have a sense of uh, other situations that people are kind of creating to deal with the affordable housing challenges? Absolutely. I think people, people well, there's so many different aspects. People on one end are providing, uh, you know, doing the whole secondary suites. That became a, a big thing. And um, then Airbnb sort of hit, slammed that a bit. But there are folks who are living in cars, in, in um, on boats, um, that in vans, and, and that issue has come up and most recently. There are a lot of people in Squamish living in vans, um, even some that stay most of the year. So I think people are responding as best they can. Uh, lots of roommate situations, but it's 
very precarious, I would say. I also think our kids, uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm 60, our kids are, you know, young adults. A lot of them are feeling they have to leave uh, town in order to afford housing um, because it's just, it's so far from their reach. Today, we, we've got We've got, really, we've got really high prices. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be familiar with the high housing costs that they're facing and maybe the high rental rates that they're facing or the difficulty of, of finding places to rent. Um, how does that relate to other people in the housing spectrum? Yeah, I think what you might be um, getting at is that that upper echelon, we keep adding to that upper echelon of housing, it seems to me. If we keep adding to that and it's not affordable, then only people who can afford it, and the higher echelon of the continuum will be taking those on. And then that pushes that next group down. So let's say the professionals in our community, nurses, social workers, who used to be able to afford you know, our top house, are now in that next level down of housing. Well, that next level down of housing was once occupied by our workforce um, the, the people who work at Starbucks and the grocery store and that sort. So now they're taking the next level down, say the, the lowest on the spectrum, and that leaves people who used to occupy that low end of the spectrum into emergency, no housing, living in vans and cars. And do you see what I mean? So each group and where they're coming from, I think the problem with Squamish is that we've had many people influx into our community because it is so beautiful and it's, you know, been highlighted in, in the world now. So now we have this huge upper level because it's less expensive than North Van and, and less expensive, say, than Vancouver and parts of Vancouver. So now that is happening. Those every every part on that spectrum are being pushed down to another form of housing. Let's, let's look into the future and imagine that our community doesn't take a lot of action to address these challenges. Where could you see Squamish winding up in, say, a decade? I think we're going to be in big trouble. I think everybody has to remember that it works for everybody to take care of our most vulnerable. It is actually a really good plan for people who want to live in a community where they feel safe, but not only safe, where, where there aren't people in the streets, where, where there is a, a sense of neighbor and community. If, you do not take, if we do not take care of our most vulnerable and the lowest end of the continuum, we just create problems for ourselves. Yeah, it sounds like there's kind of two pieces here. There's um, the need to take care of the entire spectrum um, from a standpoint of creating the community that we want to have. Mm -hmm. But there must also be an equity piece to that need to take care of everyone in the in the spectrum. And, and I'm, I'm sure you must see the, the lack of equity that occurs in certain situations. Well, when you say that lack of equity, I right away go to it costs us more to not deal with this issue. It costs community much more in um, housing, emergency services, RCMP, all of that starts to cost more. And also it costs more to house people in an emergency situation. So we're building a building to provide housing. I've basically gone to BC Housing and, and said, with the same amount of money that you give us, instead of housing 15 people per night, we can house up to 60 people. So, you know, right away, you can see there that that cost, when we house people, costs go down. Cost per person goes down. And when we house people, we are less likely to have, a, you know, 
a huge impact on the the emergency response system on on um, the emergency uh, at the hospital. All those things are expensive, really expensive. And when people are housed, they don't need those services quite so much. So I'm not sure if that was the question you were asking, but that's what comes to mind when I talk about equity and you know on a, uh, the financial end of things. Tell me a bit about the housing first approach. Housing first is very simple. It it uh, certainly speaks to the national housing strategy, where you know Trudeau talked about um, housing being a human right. So. The housing first, that's a perfect uh, marriage right there. Housing being a human right, and the housing first model is we don't care where you are on your health and well-being. We don't care if you have addictions. We don't care if you have an, a mental illness or a physical illness that hasn't been dealt with. Housing comes first because you cannot deal with mental, physical, addiction, any of those issues until you're housed. If you expect people to deal with their addictions let's say, or a mental illness while they're sleeping on the floor in a, in a fire, old firehouse 365 days a year. It's not going to happen. When they're living like that, they're living in, a, um, they're in a, a survival mode. So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, bottom line is those basic needs. That's where they are. They're just getting fed. They're just making sure they have somewhere to stay out of the cold. When you put people in housing, when people are housed or, or you give them a home, I prefer to say, um, then they, they can go out of panic mode, out of survival mode, and start to then sort of go, okay, what steps can I take? And then, and then with Housing First, it, 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 it absolutely has to come with supports. So there's many levels of support. So we were talking about supportive housing, at what we'll be doing at Under One Roof. That's full support. And, and in, we'll have different levels of support in, even within that building. When you have housing that's tenancy and in community, you still need, that can still be housing first. It still needs supports, outreach workers, connection to doctors, you know, all of that so that they don't fall off the edge. You know, they don't fall off our, our radar. The work that you're engaged in providing supportive housing for people, critical for sure. Do you see examples where it creates a big difference in people's lives? 1,000%. Um, it is so remarkable what happens when you house a person. It is beyond, uh, beyond your what I even imagined. So when you house someone, within weeks, you'll see a difference in that person. You'll see them come to life again. You'll see somebody who had sores all over their face uh, start to heal. It is, it, it's, so, it's, it's so remarkable that it's inspiring. And I, and I have to say, I, I really love seeing it. Sometimes people aren't ready. But in general, if you've put everything together and you've got a good case plan and you put somebody in housing using the housing first approach, they just turn, they just blossom. And I see it every day. I, I actually work out of our transition house. Um, one of our very first, uh, so when we got that transition house, we had a young man join us, a, a local young man who's, who's actually gone on record to talk about this with the chief. Um, his name is Dan, and he started out, 
you know, really struggling with addictions, struggling with a number of things, and finally, you know, was ready enough to to come into the housing that the the little housing that we had came in, and he is now. Uh, he also well he we got him a job with we worked with Target Homes um, doing um, ba- low barrier uh, workforce uh, jobs, and so they were they were like yeah let's let's do this and he started working with them and then he you know when we talked about it and you know uh, Dave Rancier got back to me and he's like you know the framers are hiring him he's not even going to work for us anymore the next thing you know it's just getting better and better and um, he talked to me uh, recently he's working for the tugboats and his life is on track and and I don't mean that in the sense of you know what we think is on track his life is on track for him and he is a such an incredible human being always has been but now he gets to show it and it kind of brings up another point and I if I may that if we just try to give people homes and you know support them with food and and community without also pushing uh, moving the dial on a sense of purpose we're we're missing we're missing the the mark we have to do that while also uh helping to provide a sense of purpose once those four things housing food community and purpose are in place people's lives are changed forever that's really fantastic uh, are there any common myths or, or perceptions about affordable housing that um, you think would be worth talking about and trying to dispel? Uh, I'd like to answer that by saying us and them. That's a big um, myth or, or reality we keep um, perpetuating that, that should not exist. There is no us and them. So just because you can afford or someone can afford a house in Crumpet Woods or or, or wherever is desirable in Squamish, y- you are no different than that that person who can't afford anything, who's living in their boat or who's living in emergency shelter. And as a community, we are as strong as our, our weakest link, or we are as strong as, as the community we have built. And so my job over the years has always been to keep saying the same thing. What kind of community do we want to be? And... Uh, and, and I, my answer to that is we want to be a community where everybody matters and everybody counts. So, you know, it's back to, you know, a difference in economic status is starting to define and, and, and put pressure on that us and them myth. Um, they're, they're really in a happy, well-designed um, community, there can't be an us and them. And, and the, what's remarkable, which goes back to your other, other question around what's happened to people when they're housed, is that that's the thing. We keep that us and them a divide or barrier happening the more we do not care for uh, the ones at the, the bottom and, and, and do not provide housing because they can't um, show their best selves from from a place of, of zero housing. The other myth I think that we should address or look at is the myth that it'll all take care of itself, right? Everybody thinks, well, you know, it'll all work out. Everything will, you know, there'll be a nice big shuffle and it'll all be okay. I, I think we're seeing very specifically here in Squamish that that is not the case. Invisible hand? Y- you would think, right? The more that comes online, the more affordable it will be. It does not seem to be happening. And is that because so many are just coming to fill them, fill those units 
from elsewhere? Maybe. You know, I've lived other places where that is the case where, you know, you add units and everything settles down. There's, you know, sure, there, you know, things increase, but not to the degree that we're seeing here in Squamish. What's underway right now in Squamish? So right off the bat, um, I've referenced this already. Under One Roof is a new project that's coming, uh, will be available or opening um, in t- September 2020. And that is a purely supportive housing um, project for now. You know, we may have to adapt if, if that um, doesn't work, if we need other housing. For instance, we have like three floors of housing, so maybe the top floor will have to change to something else. So that's one project um, that's coming online that's well underway. BC Housing has um, funded. The other projects that are underway are the seniors, is the seniors uh, project, which is going to bring, I think, about 240 units uh, online. I don't know the exact numbers around that one, whether that's uh, 240 extra or 240 um, in total. I think that's the in total. And that's coming, and I'm not sure of their date. The other project that's in the works is the one they're calling the Buckley Project, which is uh, a project between BC Housing and the district. Most people are, are looking at that project, or many people are looking at that project, and are not seeing that it's affordable. So the answer to that, or some people's answer to that, would be, well, you know, you can get subsidies to make it affordable. However, when I'm talking to single parents of two and three children um, who are, you know, making in the $50,000 range, they're saying, we're getting caught in the middle there because we can't afford it. It doesn't seem affordable, and yet we're likely not going to be eligible for subsidies to go with that. So those are the three projects that I see um, coming online that are going to help, but they nowhere near um, address the, the problem now and the upcoming problem. How, how do you define affordable housing? Uh, well, one classic definition of affordable housing would be that it um, costs 30% of your income. So that's been a long-standing definition, and I, I, I quite agree that that works for everybody to, to look at. Right. I guess that leaves money for the other necessities of life and some extra at the end of the day so that you can live a normal life and be housed. Absolutely, and be able to buy your kids the clothes they need, put food, healthy, nutritious food on the table, be able to go to a movie once in a while, you know, a, a yep. simple life, not, not an extravagant life. Just a simple life. Are there actions that you feel like we really need to be taking but aren't or that we, you know, we, we need to identify now and start moving on? Yeah, I, I really do think uh, a big one for me in our sector is having a housing authority of sorts. And I don't want to use the word authority to, to match what Whistler you know, has, but just an authority or an agency that is made up that is the district coming together with the nonprofit sector or the housing sector, um, as well as developers and you know nonprofit leaders, as many people at that table, um, where we are really looking at it, at it um, strategically together. I think that's a really important phase, and I th- I think we have to be communicating better th- from council and and the municipality to the nonprofit housing sector to make sure that we're getting the best. Um, best body 
there. The other thing people need to know that there is yep. a real tension between um, municipalities and the province because housing falls within the provincial um, stream. And, you know, when I've had arguments with previous mayors, we, you know, I, I say I agree housing is within the provincial mandate and everything, but the pr province is bringing it. So for instance, you know, through BC Housing, the province is bringing quite a bit of money to this under one roof project, also bringing money to the seniors project, you know, also bringing money to the, the uh, district, um, the Buckley project. So yes, but we can't get away from it also being a municipal uh, responsibility and issue. And I think maybe from, from a municipal side, it's about being strategic. And so then um, being able to harness monies that are coming down the pike and that kind of thing by being strategic and knowing what we need and, and acting on it. Maureen, thanks a ton for sitting down with us. Um, I really appreciate having the chance to hear your perspective, but also community really owes a debt to you for the work that you do. And thank you very much for your continued work in Squamish. Thank you so much for having me. It is really a privilege to do work in this town. And now it's time for our Heritage Moment, during which you can expect to hear lesser-known facts and stories from community members that have formed part of Squamish's history. In this episode, we're joined by District Councillor Eric Anderson, who will give us a brief history of affordable and purpose-built housing in our community. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, a District of Squamish Councillor, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about Squamish affordable housing, a bit of a historical perspective. Today, Squamish is in a period of stress relating to lack of affordable housing. The town has experienced this before. This time, the housing affordability problem is mostly resulting from our being more closely tied to the Lower Mainland and its issues. We also have expanding tourism and related service businesses. In past periods, our housing supply just wasn't keeping up with an expanded local economy, a Squamish jobs boom. Today and in the past, employers have been affected and have needed to respond. Some examples from the past are interesting of employers and the community working together. They have helped build and shape our neighborhoods. Numerous employers have been directly involved in providing housing for employees and their families over the decades. The Forest Service has built houses for employee families. The Hospital, BC Electric, BC Tell built several houses on Hospital Hill. They're all still there. Many will remember the green railway employee houses in two long rows on Cleveland Avenue between the Pavilion Park and House Sound Inn. They were built in the 1920s when the railway and Squamish were growing. Green was the railway's color, the only color of paint they seemed to have, also for community projects they helped out with, like the old Logger Sports Arena, all in green. The biggest boom time and worst housing shortage probably ever for Squamish was in the early 1960s. Housing was an urgent issue then for the community and several employers. People would find a house somewhere on the coast and tow it here. Wood fiber was being rebuilt and expanded. Empire Lumber Sawmill was being built. Two major logging divisions opened up. Britannia Mines came back and was now interested in Squamish housing. And then there were three new elementary schools and an expanded high school. The school district and Ministry of Education responded with housing for teachers, built near the schools, still there today, as a rental housing on Wilson Crescent and along Government Road and elsewhere. The first parts of Garibaldi Highlands were developed in a teamwork between the developer, Pat Good, and Woodfiber, 
Several houses along Air Drive, for example, still there today. The grandest example of teamwork to build new affordable housing for employee families was Valleycliff. Wood Fiber, then the Rainier Company, bought the old railway logging camp lands from Maryland Ring and worked with other employers and all three levels of government to plan what became Valleycliff. An early planning map for Valleycliff found in the district archives recently has FPLA in big letters, Federal Provincial Land Assembly Project. Much of what was built as affordable housing for employee families is still with us today in every part of our town. The District of Squamish has recently taken initiative to protect some of the affordable rental housing built for employees and young families in the mid-1960s. Garibaldi Garden Court and Valleycliff Apartments are examples. Remembering their origins should also reinforce the message that we haven't been keeping up, but also that it was teamwork that responded in the past and teamwork will be needed again. For the second half of our program, I'll be speaking to two members of District of Squamish Council. Joining me now in studio are Councillor Jenna Stoner. Hi there. And Councillor Armand Herford. Hello. Thanks for both sitting down to chat. Thank you for having us. Armand, before we begin speaking about affordable housing from a council perspective, I want to start by asking you a few questions as a business owner in town about the role housing costs play in the lives of your employees. Uh, First off, can you tell me a bit about your business? Sure. Um, We're a full-service bicycle shop, uh, and that comes with, there's a certain seasonality that's uh, sort of inherent to the the business. It's a bit more popular to be riding in the in the sun here so uh so we have a seasonal aspect to our business and we employ up to 16 people in town can you tell me a bit about some of the housing situations that some of your employees are in we end up having quite a diverse um group of of characters maybe the bike industry is a bit of a collection of misfits so people come from all uh, walks of life and from all over and uh, we do quite a bit of our our hiring from away like when people aren't aren't here so we'll We'll do Skype interviews, and one of the first questions that we have, have you considered the housing costs? Like, have you looked at you know, your, your Craigslist ads or, or what have you to, to get set up? And, um, and almost everyone has at, at that point, but it is a challenge. Um, this season, I think we had, I had two staff members for a period of time that were living in their vehicles, and one has since gone back to Germany. It fit very well with his plans and that's, he's a young guy and that's what he, how he wanted to, to do it. And, and, uh, and the other, um, the other person's, uh, has a roommate situation now and is inside, which I always feel better when everyone's inside. But the reality is that, uh, that over the years we've had people living in, in vehicles as well. Yeah. And I, I get the sense that that is not an uncommon situation in businesses in Squamish, that there are other businesses that have people who, who choose to live in vehicles for a variety of reasons. Do you think that reality um, creates challenges for finding employees for your business or other businesses? Yes, I think so. The, um, I think that in some ways people make a sacrifice to come to Squamish to participate in their sport. You know, in, in my Day to day, that's generally mountain biking. I'm sure it's the same. We have, have world class uh, rock climbing and the wind sport stuff, and they're sort of um, accepting of a certain level of sacrifice to to do that. But I think now, um, with the situation we're in with the housing here, um, it's becoming a real barrier. With our same advertising methods, we're not seeing the same number of applicants 
Um, and I think that the, the housing is a big part of that. And I did also have some mid-season turnover this year where uh, we had provide, provide stable enough employment for a, a couple that worked for, for us for a, couple, for a number of years, actually, that they could be approved for a mortgage and they could buy a place. And it was a very happy time for them. And that place is somewhere that was more affordable. And that is something that, that I, I could see being repeated. That must be a challenge to see that. And I, we even see that at the at Municipal Hall. There are sometimes employees that are looking for ways to, to find that home that they've been wanting to purchase, and sometimes it's not in Squamish. Do your employees talk about housing much in terms of a, a challenge, like in day-to-day conversation, or is it, is it not something that comes up? Um, I wouldn't say it comes up in day-to-day. It it does sort of spike when someone's looking for a place or there's someone new to town. And, um, my, uh, <laughs> actually my mom ends up being the cat, the catch all. So she's the welcoming committee. So she's got a couple extra rooms at her house and almost everybody that comes ends up staying at my mom's house for a bit <laughs> until they figure out how to find a roommate or how to actually get a, get a spot, um, lined up. So there's these little spikes where, um, where it becomes uh, a hot topic because someone needs a needs a place, and uh, sometimes that place is en- ends up being the support that we can provide. My extended family's been able to provide to sort of bridge some gaps. So, a new ECDEV strategy is to connect employers with moms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes that two week window or three week window between between spots can be a huge crisis for someone and can result in that's where you end up living in a, in a vehicle for a period of time. And sometimes you don't come back from that. So I think that there is a role where, where the employers can help uh, and, and where employees should feel safe asking for that help because it's not a, an unheard of situation. Certainly. On a broader scale, Jenna, what specific challenges do you see Squamish uh, employers facing in, in terms of workforce housing, especially something that we'd consider from a council perspective? There is limited, if none, in terms of workforce housing in our community, I think is the biggest challenge. The reality is that Squamish has been sitting at a zero or near zero percent vacancy rate uh, for nearly five years now, if not a little bit more. And I think that that is having ripple effects, both in terms of the community connections uh, that we're seeing in our town and having people leave, as Armin was just speaking about, um, to, to more affordable communities. Um, and we're also seeing it with our economic development strategies and and uh, businesses having a hard time both recruiting and retaining staff in our community. Uh, we are starting to see a few businesses that are taking a little bit more creative solutions, um, especially those that have larger workforces. Uh, I know that the gondola um, was uh, able to secure uh, some housing up at Quest University over the summer for a, a number of their employees. Um, so we're starting to see some partnerships emerge and some creative solutions come forward, um, but it definitely isn't enough to provide the stability that folks need, especially given that so much of um, of our employment is kind of tourism-driven and often a little bit lower income. I think those... Uh situations like the gondola reaching out and finding housing to provide for their employees is is it's not surprising that's coming armin do you see a a similar role or other roles that businesses might be playing in uh, uh, securing workforce housing moving into the future well there's the grander scale things like the what jenna just spoke about with the gondola but on a on a smaller scale one of the things that i've been trying to do and i know that um this is within grasp of other um other businesses as well, is uh, I have a network of people that I know are own spots uh, and own apartments that are renting. And 
I'm often their first call. So now I can go around my staff and say, hey, is anyone looking? There's this apartment and it's not advertised yet. And, and that is a level of trust between the business and the landlord and where maybe they wouldn't necessarily uh, rent to any 22-year-old person off the street, but as they've been through uh, an extensive sort of interview process and they and the landlord knows the um, the business owner or the business itself, uh, and and there's a level of comfort there that may not exist, and sort of facilitating those those two parties getting together. I think that there's that can be developed uh, more formally um, with other with other businesses, and um, and even just being on the business's radar that this is this is a, a piece of your of your employee's life that you um, you can be involved in and positively affect. Yeah, I hear uh, hesitancy sometimes from landowners or homeowners about renting suites because of some of the strength of, of tenant protection in the Residential Tenancy Act. And so what you're talking about is highlighting uh, an, another mechanism where some of the confidence in the tenant comes from a connection with business. Uh, that seems like a really interesting idea. And it, do you think there's a room for a more formalized process uh, that, that ties into that, um, that type of connection, Jenna? Yeah, definitely. It's something that council has looked at and actually directed staff um, to explore a little bit further. Uh, there are models out there. I believe Whistler is one of them that has taken um, this this step towards securing a more formalized uh, em- employment workforce housing type of structure where the employer uh, becomes responsible for that for that rental, um, and then that rental becomes tied to that employee's employment. Um, so it's part of your, your employment contract that you get that uh, rental space um, and then the employer is able to back in, provide that security to the landlord. That's definitely something that we are excited to look into and we also think um, can help incentivize some folks uh, to put their potentially now short-term rentals into a longer-term rental pool. Turning from workforce housing to the broader community, what are some of the impacts you've seen either as a counselor or as a resident from the high cost of housing? Well, I grew up in Squamish, so I have a lot of friends that we've been friends since elementary school. And that number that's still in Squamish is dwindling rapidly as they're leaving for places where they feel they have more opportunity. And some of those people um, come from long sort of family traditions in in town and I think that's part of the strength of a small community of these longer term generational things oh that family they're really into hockey and they just run the minor hockey program and it's a it's a tradition as an example so some of those traditions I find are being are being lost as these people uh, are being forced to to relocate and and it's not a, a new squamish old squamish thing or anything like that but I think it is sad when we're just sort of swapping out um, residents for other residents that can afford to be here. And, and that doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, I myself have had friends who moved six times in two years. Uh, they offered to uh, sign a multi-year lease uh, with a number of landlords and weren't able to, um, and they ended up leaving town. That's just one of many examples that I can think of. Um, and these are good people who wanted to be here and wanted to make it work, um, who love this community and just couldn't make it work. And that is on one end of the spectrum. And then we're also seeing on the other end of the spectrum where where more people are living in their vehicles, living on the streets. Um, and that is uh, is 
really, really challenging to see, especially as uh, a member of council, um, where we're trying to represent all the folks who are in our communities. And we have more people who don't have fixed addresses, who are dependent on social services, uh, and we're not we're not providing the safety net and the housing first that they need to be able to get ahead. We heard Maureen talk about the perception that the housing market would take care of itself over time and that by increasing supply, we would eventually reduce the, the prices through addressing demand. But her point was that the lower mainland has a massive amount of demand and that Squamish, because the price is relatively lower, will continue to attract people and that it'll be very hard to overcome that, uh, that amount of demand and bring prices down. What's your perspective on this? Are there ways that we can tackle this regional issue? Well, firstly, I'd agree with that assessment of the situation. We are arguably an hour's drive from uh, a major metropolis center and it's a beautiful place to live. We live in a wonderful community. So that's going to be appealing. You throw a slightly lower price in, um, which seems absurd that we're talking about it slightly lower. It's ridiculously high, but it is slightly lower than um, the even more ridiculous uh, pricing throughout the lower mainland. And there is a huge demand. So that will spur and has spurred uh, investment from a, a development standpoint in Squamish. Um, but it's not going to solve the we're not going to solve the issue with purely with inventory because there is a massive, massive demand. I couldn't agree more with Maureen. I think that the concept of leaving the affordability crisis to be solved by the market is the issue that got us here in the first place. Um, the concept that we are using housing as an investment for retirement and our futures um, means that there's a whole bunch of speculation that's going into markets around the globe. Um, and it moves us away from this concept that housing is a right, a human right, that we need to have roofs over our heads um, for everybody in our communities to make wholesome communities. And so the concept of uh, we're going to be able to build enough housing to meet the demand one day, um, I think is a false platitude given what we've seen in terms of the market to date, uh, decades of underfunding um, in, in both rental and affordable housing from the provincial and federal governments, as well as the globalization of, of international uh, markets. How do you see the municipal role having changed over time in terms of addressing housing costs and housing affordability? I think munis municipalities have inevitably started to step up to the challenge um, because other governments have walked away from the table for so long. Um, this really is a federal and provincial jurisdiction, but it has been downloaded to municipalities to start to deal with. And so we are using all the tools in our toolbox to become creative uh, to find solutions for the affordability crisis. The main one that we have is, is zoning, um, and we've used a few other policy mechanisms. A common argument from housing advocates, which Maureen talked about, is that public investments in housing are far less expensive than the cost of keeping someone in homelessness. Service expenses for shelter, hospitals, police, or emergency services are far greater than the subsidies required for providing supportive housing. The challenge is that, that the benefit from keeping someone out of homelessness crosses different jurisdictions and different budgets. What's your perspective on this? How do we align those government interests to try and achieve something on this topic? Well, that's a really excellent point. And I think it's 
it's hard to get all orders of government on the same page to move uh, in the same in the same direction. And I mean, we've had some successes recently with um, with BC Housing, uh, working on some projects in Squamish, and and that's been been amazing. But when you look at that sort of uh, full uh, scale assessment of the situation, bringing in the healthcare costs and the policing costs, and it makes total sense. But unfortunately, that hasn't come out in in action from all th- all three sort of orders of government at the same time in the same direction on the same projects. Um, and that that needs to change. I am hearing it being discussed more on the, uh, as we're recording this, we're in the midst of a federal election and it is a, a topic that some of the candidates are speaking about. And I hope that uh, it comes to some action, uh, particularly from the federal government, as we recently, I think it'd be, we'd have a hard time saying that the province isn't helping a lot. They should do more, but they've been pretty generous to us uh, in the last uh, few years in Squamish. Your question is an interesting one, Matt, and the way that you posed it, you mentioned that it uh, the challenge goes across orders of government as well as different budget cycles, and I'd say also uh, our political terms. And so a four-year political term is often uh, not long enough to make the changes that we need to see on this issue, and I think that is one of the biggest challenges in terms of getting all orders of government on the same page at the same time. It presents a huge challenge, but... I will also say that it has been done in other jurisdictions and other places around the world. Finland is a great example. Uh, They have implemented a housing first policy and they've seen a 40% reduction in their homelessness rates in just a few years. Armin, you mentioned BC Housing. Can you tell us more about that example for partnering with other organizations to try and address uh, affordable housing beyond just the provincial and the federal government? There's organizations that that's their their mandate is is to... affect the the home the homelessness and sort of our harder to house residents i think it was two weeks ago i went for a tour of some supportive housing uh project in vancouver and um it really showed me that that things can be done and the positive outcomes are right there and we know what needs to happen for for some of these people regardless of who it's led who it's led by and it is fully life-changing for people. So I'm dodging your question slightly because you're asking where those opportunities are. And I'm going back just to the pure importance of it, hap- of it happening. There, there are these, these projects out there that are led by others besides the, the municipality or the province or, or the feds. And those groups can be the, uh, the access for everyone, all those orders of government coming together and sort of taking the, the appropriate step in the appropriate direction. The project that Armin uh, got a tour of, unfortunately, I wasn't there, but it is one of many projects that's coming out of uh, substantial funding from the province. Um, they last year uh, published the Homes for BC plan, um, which is a, one of the largest scale investments that we're seeing in housing since 2009. And they're looking to build 114,000 units across the province. What are our biggest opportunities and what should our priorities be to support affordable housing in our community? That's a great question because it touches on a previous conversation around how this issue has is definitely focusing on the municipal government's actions. Uh, it's definitely a high priority for this council and for the previous council. And so there is a number of things that are currently underway, which are very exciting. 
One is a 76-unit affordable housing project on Buckley Avenue, which is the low and deeply subsidized uh, affordable housing, as well as a medium-income rental unit in the North Yards, which is about 40 units. Both those projects are supported by BC Housing. So we've been doing active work in terms of trying to get funding from the province to support the build of projects, which is really important to actually start to meet that demand. I'd also like to add that in the in the background to, to that, um, a lot of work's been done on our perpetually affordable housing policy, which uh, should lay out the framework to move towards a housing authority of some sort of governing body to help manage these dedicated rental uh, units as well as the subsidized rental rental units uh, as they come online. And coming online is sort of a piece that I'd like to take on for for a minute. And the work that lands at our uh, on our desks as a as a counselor is is a lot of the very preliminary work where where should we go how which direction are we heading how fast would you like to get there and the the buckley and the north yards are both through us now they need to be built out so that lag time is is something that is a little frustrating with there's such a need in our community i'd like to see people when we say yes okay this is a a great project this is going to be a subsidized rental go i'd like those people to have somewhere to be you know tomorrow night but that's not the case. And, and whether that's uh, waiting on budget cycles for funding or just construction timelines, it's, it's hard because we want to take action quickly. And, and I feel that we have in, our, in, you know, in, in the things that are actually uh, in our control. And now it's out to the uh, moved on down the line and we'll see uh, the, the timelines are very reasonable. I'm not saying that they're not, they're not, that they're artificially longer or anything like that from a construction standpoint, but the problem is, has such a high priority for all of us on council. We'd like to see our, our decisions just sort of arrive there. Oh, look, there's a building and now we can house a bunch of people. But un- unfortunately this, this solutions to this problem are, uh, have a, a much longer timeline than, uh, the creation of the problem. I remember, it was probably about three months ago, we were in a council meeting and on our break, uh, there was a woman who was waiting outside the council meeting to talk to the mayor who was in tears because she was getting kicked out of her low income rental space the next week and didn't have anywhere to go. And so there are moments like that that become um, so hard hitting of we are trying to do what it is that we can, but there are people in crisis today and we just don't have the tools as council to help them. One of the things that Maureen talked about was this gap between homeowners and people in other parts of the housing spectrum, that there's a, uh, a conflict that comes up in established and existing neighborhoods where there's reluctance to accept either different forms of housing or non-market housing or supportive housing forms. Do you see there being opportunities to encourage more acceptance of these housing forms in established and existing uh, neighborhoods so that we can achieve some of these affordable housing solutions? Definitely. But I think it takes time and it takes lots of community conversations. And I'd like to challenge that concept a little bit because I feel that as much as there are these larger, um, like the Buckley project, for instance, is... 80 some odd 80-ish units um, that's a big that's a big change for that neighborhood and it's a big piece but as other developments are coming online we've got dedicated rent we've secured dedicated rentals in a lot of these new developments and that's just one door in the hallway 
It doesn't look any different. The people living there aren't any, aren't any different than the rest of their neighbors. And there's strength in that, in that neighborhood. And they're all going to, they're all going to lift each other, each other up. I don't think that we're going to see, uh, as big a challenge in our community as we've seen in some other, um, some other communities as they, as these bigger projects, um, roll out. And that's based on our, uh, proven culture of being good neighbors and having empathy for our fellow humans and all those things that makes Wamish so good. I'm not surprised that our municipality is trying to respond to it because it's such a pressing issue for our community, but that could be quite a precedent to set and quite an ongoing responsibility to take on without any significant change in our revenue structure to take care of it. And I think that's where this bigger piece around provincial lobbying comes in, in terms of changing what our revenue structures can be, especially with rezoning and redevelopment. So not to get into too many details around uh, development cost charges and community money contributions, but we have limited tools in our municipality toolbox to be able to fund these sorts of projects. Um, we have taken steps to try and increase the scope of that, um, but we are continuously working and trying to lobby the government to change the way that that uh, development cost charges regulation allows us to to direct those funds to other types of projects. More to come. Always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for the work that you do on council and for sitting down and joining me today to talk about it. Very exciting. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. It's been great. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more on affordable housing in our community, visit squamish.ca slash affordable housing and connect with us for the latest district updates on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash district of Squamish. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Email us at communications at squamish.ca. Thanks for joining us.